As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, helping you to understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook or two. That's premierunbelievable.com. But now for today's show. I am joined by Bruce Miller, author of numerous books, including The Seven Big Questions, Searching for God, Truth and Purpose, which is the focus of our show today. Bruce is the founding pastor of Christ Fellowship in McKinney, Texas. He is also a consultant for Christian leaders and has recently directed his wisdom towards LGBTQ plus consulting, having written various books on this topic. Well, Bruce, welcome back to the show. We're going to talk about two more of the questions in your brilliant book. Um, so let's just dive straight in with the... Is there right, a... Ruth, let's do it. Let's jump right in. <laughs> I mean, the first question in this episode is, is quite a big one. Is there a God? Um, and I guess the first thing I'd want to know was, is like, would you approach this question differently for a Christian and a non-Christian? Because presumably a Christian would know that there was a God. Um, but, but I mean, it might still be something that they wrestle with. But how would That's you right. approach that question? It would, it would be, it's, you know, you'd think that for a Christian, you would know there's a God. But I find that many Christians ask this question because when, you, when maybe there's something that's shaken your faith, rattled you, uh, it might be a, a TV program you watched or something you've been exposed to, or it might be something you've experienced or even a conversation with somebody you care about, somebody in your family who um, has asked you some hard questions you're not sure how to answer. And what happens is you begin to wonder, maybe it's all not true. Maybe everything I've believed is wrong about Christianity and then even God. Does, what that leads you to is the, really the fundamental questions, because you're really wondering, is Christianity itself true? But what that takes you to at a deep level is, is the question, is there even a God at all? Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a question Christians ask. And in fact, I would say it's a question that's good to ask. Um, one of the things we've been talking about together, Ruth, is the value of asking questions. And I find if you don't ask these questions, if you sort of push them back and try to ignore them and push them out of the way, then you don't develop a solid faith. Your faith ends up being shallow and you have these doubts in the back of your mind that weaken your faith. Whereas if you would embrace the question and just go ahead and say, all right, let me ask, is there a God? Then when you work that through, your faith actually is strengthened. 
mm. whether you're a Christian or if you're, if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, it's a great place of discovery because I find a lot of non-Christians want to stay in a permanently agnostic position. Uh, well, I just don't know enough. I don't, and I don't know if you can know. So I don't, I'm not going to say there is a God or is not a God. Mm. Well, that's sort of a non-position. I love, um, I, I've quoted loads from your book already, but I just love it. So I'm going to keep quoting. Um, I love what you say okay, where you no, say. I like the quoting it. So don't say that. <laughs> People still need to read the book, though, just, just to be clear. Um, but you say God is more than the conclusion of a logical argument, yet believing in God's existence is not irrational or without evidence. So I guess I'd love to ask you, what are some of those evidences, do you think? Yeah, and I think it's important to, to speak of them as evidences. So... As we talked about in the previous uh, program, that we don't have absolute knowledge. God is not the conclusion of a logical argument, like two plus two is four. He's more than that, not less than that. There are rational, reasonable evidences why God exists. And so I, I have this image that I use in the book of like when you walk into a dark room, especially if you've been in the light and your eyes are adjusted to bright light, and then you walk into a pitch dark room, you can't see anything. But you you feel like, I think there's someone else in the room. You sense a presence, but you don't know. So you light a candle, and that light enables you to maybe see someone. You light a second candle, and a third candle, and a fourth candle. And by the time you've lit the fourth candle, you can perceive there is someone else in the room. So I'm using that illustration to, to then develop or light four candles, which would be four evidences that got a fur the fact that God does exist that would give us to lead, lead us to believe it is rational, reasonable to believe that God exists. And is there one for you which is particularly compelling, do you think, or is it the kind of, com- I can never say that word, cumulative, <laughs> you know, yes. adding it all together? Is, is really that think, what for you yeah, is? I really is, think it's the culmination of all the arguments uh, all added together that are persuasive to me that it is more rational, more, more reasonable to believe that there is a God than to believe that there is not a God. You quote Einstein in your book, um, who says that science without religion is lame and religion without science is blind. What do you think Einstein meant by that? And what was your purpose in including it in the book? Now, so many people believe that religion and science are opposed. And sometimes you either have to accept one or the other. Either I'm going to be a person of science or I'm going to be a person of faith or religion. But in fact, Einstein was pointing out that you don't have, that's, not a, that's a false disjunction. You don't have to oppose them. In fact, they're not opposed. And that religion and faith work together um, and are not, they're not at odds with each other. And some of the questions they ask and answer are different. But they're not, at, they're not you don't have to reject science as a person of faith, nor as a person of, of science do you have to reject faith. And um, this might be really difficult to sort of bring into a really concise way, but let's imagine you were in an elevator or a lift for the British listeners. Um, <laughs> the, the, kind of the elevator pitch of, you know, you've got a minute or however long it takes to get up in the elevator to share what you think are the kind of most compelling arguments for the existence of God. What, what would be your kind of elevator pitch for the existence of God? Well, I think if I had time to light all four candles, I would, but... One that I think is particularly compelling is the argument from complexity or design. And that is that our universe manifests incredibly intricate design. There's an old illustration of a person walking along a beach and picking up seashells. 
and perhaps to take home to their children. And then all of a sudden you, you stumble on a watch and you pick up the watch and no one is going to mistake a watch for a seashell. You wonder who lost their watch. Maybe I could return this to the owner. And there's a, because you realize there's a difference between the complexity of the watch and the complexity of the seashell. So for instance, there's a difference between, let's say the Grand Canyon and it's beautiful. It's been made, or, but it's just through erosion. There's a process that describes why, where the Grand Canyon came from. On the other hand, when you look at the pyramids in Egypt, you are aware that someone made those. You don't think, oh, there was erosion that created these pyramids. You wonder how in the world did people build these pyramids a long time ago? Because we intuitively understand the difference between one level of complexity and the other. So when you look at our world and you look at the complexity of DNA, for instance, or a cell, or even the stars, and you're like, these are, this is not explainable by just a repeated process like a seashell. This is much more like the pyramids. For example, the fact that the um, the human code for the DNA has got three billion letters or something in it, hasn't right, it? It's right. like that long. Brilliant. Well, um, Bruce, that feels like a good place to to leave that question because I, I, you know, I really would recommend people go and read the book to find out what are those other three candles. Um, but as you said in a previous episode, one of the questions that is just the most pertinent and probably the most asked by Christians and non-Christians alike, and, and in my experience, certainly anecdotally, is the reason why most of my friends or family have left the faith is because of pain and suffering. So I know this is going to be a really difficult topic, but I, I'd love us to kind of delve into this a little bit. Why does God allow pain and suffering? And I guess the first thing I'd love to know is, like, do you feel in some ways this is easier to answer within a Christian context? Because I suppose in some senses you're dealing with the character of God. Like, is he trustworthy? Is he kind? Is he good? Whereas for a non-Christian, you're sort of dealing with the very existence of God, which is which is what is at stake potentially when a non-Christian is asking this question. Yeah, I, I really do think that the, the Christian answer, the answer out of the scripture is so much more satisfying than any, any other answer. And I, I just want to say at the outset that my heart goes out to you if you're suffering right now. If you're going through something, someone has done something terrible to you, or you've experienced tremendous pain and suffering, um, I want you to know God is with you and he cares about you and you're not alone. And I, I care about you and I know you do, Ruth. We don't want anyone to suffer and it, it, it's just difficult. And so it's much more than just an intellectual question, much more than just a, uh, a theory to talk about. This is, is, is so tangible, so real, and so visceral, so deep for people. So having said that, the fact of evil and suffering is there no matter what worldview you take. And so sometimes people think, well, why did God allow pain and suffering? And there must not be a God if there's pain and suffering. Okay, we'll take God away. Now all you have are pain and suffering. So it doesn't make it any easier in terms of just intellectually explaining it. But I find that, so it, also as we begin to talk about it, we're talking about it in the abstract, not in the specific. So one question is, why is there rape at all? A different question is, why was a particular person raped? Mm -hmm. And we just don't have an explanation for why this person in this moment was killed in a car accident and this other person was in an accident and only got a small scrape. We, we don't have answers for that. We can ask the question, why is anyone killed in a car accident? 
Why is anyone um, cheated on or betrayed by somebody? So in there, when we look at this, you look at the overall whole storyline of the Bible, and really it's looking at the entire story of God's work in the world that, that gives us the most solid answer to this question. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. You go into great detail um, in in the book about this, and I think you know it's really important that you do do that. And I guess this might be a really difficult question to answer, but but how are you personally able to still believe in God despite the suffering that you have seen and experienced? You know, you're a pastor; you must have walked through so many people going through just some awful things. How are you able to reconcile the goodness of God, your your belief in God, with some of the things that you've seen and experienced? And really, it is, it is uh, Ruth, this, this whole story that starts in creation that God created us with the ability to make choices that matter. And so now as a grandfather, I have a, a nine-year-old granddaughter. And if I, if I forced her to give me a hug, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that would have that much meaning. But when she, her name is Arabella, she goes by Belle. And when Belle runs up and throws her arms around me, and says she loves me, she chose to do that. She could have chosen not to. And the, the, the depth of feeling for me, for my granddaughter to hug me and love me is huge. But if we were just robots, or if we wrote a, a software program that forced my granddaughter to love me somehow, it really wouldn't have any meaning. It, and so God has given us the dignity of making choices that matter, which means we choose good, and, and a lot of us do, and those result in good results for ourselves and others. And when we choose something wrong and we hurt someone else, that creates pain. But the fact that we have that choice is a gift from God that carries with it both the opportunity for true, genuine love and for real pain. I suppose that answers, um, you know, whether satisfactory or, or not, depending on who you are, the, the question of kind of moral evil. But what about natural evil, for want of a better phrase, that natural disasters, right. cancer, sickness, things like that? Cancer, hurricanes, all of mm. that. And in the biblical story, whether you accept the Bible or not, you to it, I think it's I think it's important to understand whether you agree with it or not, at least to understand it before you choose to agree or disagree, is that when... In the origin story, when humanity, Adam and Eve, chose to sin, it affected the entire creation. So the Bible talks about even the creation, the earth groaning in, it uses even the phrase in childbirth, so Mm -hmm. in deep pain, so that the world itself, the creation itself is impacted by our choices. So the Bible uses imagery like thorns appear. And so there is death that's entered the world and decay and that's where natural evil, so to speak, as you would say, but hurricanes, uh, disease, which is really hard. Like when you have a little child who gets cancer as a, as a, a young child, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, that just seems so senseless. How can that be? And so people ask fairly the question, well, if God's all-powerful and all-good, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he stop it? And I think that's a fair question. 
And you mentioned three approaches to suffering, which I think are really helpful in your book, optimism, pessimism and dualism. Would you sort of briefly define each one of those and kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, I was just trying to give maybe a simple categorization of the ways humans have answered this question. And so a pessimist says something like, well, let's go to optimist. An optimist says something like evil doesn't even exist. Don't worry about it. There's some forms of Buddhism who would be along this line, which is if you just understood it all correctly, there really is no evil. Or it goes like this, um, at a just kind of an everyday level. Well, really, uh, good comes out of suffering, and it's really not bad, it's really good, and you learn the most in hard times, and honestly, it's all good, it's not bad. Well, that's not really satisfying. And then a pessimistic view is, you. it's just, um, there is no meaning. It's, it's the nihilist view that there, you just, you suffer, you hurt, you experience pain, you die, that's it. No meaning, no value, no purpose, no explanation. It's just brutal. A dualist point of view is that there's a good force and an evil force, and they're battling against each other, kind of a Star Wars philosophy. Yeah. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a, good, a good and an evil, and they're at war with each other, and evil comes out of that battle. And where would Christianity fit within that, not, not in any of those categories? No, Christianity doesn't fit any of those categories. You know, I raised the question, why doesn't God do something about sin and evil and suffering and pain? And the answer is, he did. Mm-hmm. He did something dramatic about it. He sent his one and only son. And actually, the Bible says he took on pain. He took on suffering on his own shoulders. Literally, he died for us. Jesus Christ did on the cross, which was which was God's way of addressing evil and suffering, which is utterly dramatic, incredibly loving, almost beyond belief that God would become a human being, become one of us to rescue us from sin and evil and suffering. It's just amazing. Bruce, how would you respond to that accusation that if God created everything and evil's, you know, part of the world, then he must have created evil? Because I guess would i mean actually that wouldn't be dualism would it no that would be yeah good god creating everything and, and evil is therefore part of everything so he must have i guess even if indirectly created evil what right that's a, that? yeah and, and, and that's a that's an important question it's been asked frankly for thousands of years and saint augustine gave i think what is the uh, the best answer which is that evil is not a thing he argued that evil is a lack for instance, he would say darkness is, does, is not a thing, it's the absence of light. And so, like rust cannot exist without metal. You have no metal, you have no rust. So evil is not a thing in and of itself. It's real, but it's not a thing in and of itself. It's a lack of a thing. So if you had no good, you would have no evil. So I suppose, could someone then say if there was no God, there would be no evil? Yes, you could go through that direction. If there is no God, there is no evil. And then you start going into uh, what I think is, is the, the best competing view against Christianity is nihilism. I think Friedrich Nietzsche was the most honest, which is, sure, if there is no God, there is no evil in, that, in an absolute sense. Uh, you can't even say that murder is evil. It's just taking a life of any, like taking a life of any um, organism. And pain itself is not bad, not morally bad. It's just a thing that exists. And there is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no God. There is no good or evil. We just live, we hurt, we die, and that's it. Without God, without Christianity, I think that's the most honest view. 
But I guess it comes down to the question of what's the most satisfying and what works in a, in a you know, what no, works I'd for say, real life. I'd say not only satisfying and works, although I think both of those have merit, but also what's the most reasonable, what's the most rational. And ultimately, it's what's, the, what's real, what's true. Yeah. Is there a God or not? If it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's not a question of preference. That's often where there's confusion. Really, there, either there is a God or there's not, mm. or maybe what kind of God is there? Um, but he exists whether we believe in him or not. Well, I, there's so many questions we could be asking about this, but I'm aware that we need to finish our program at some point. Um, so I guess as we as we round up this episode, it feels appropriate that the final question I ask you would be to, you know, what what is our response to people who are suffering around us? What should we be doing to help those around us who are suffering? Yeah, I think the the real response is to do what what God did for us, which is enter into our world, enter into our suffering. And so to, to love people, and so it's compassion and empathy and bringing real help to people, real healing, to walk with them in their journey of pain and suffering, and to be, to the Bible talks about Christians being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, that we would bring his love and his presence into people's hurt and pain. Bruce, thank you so much. We will talk more about some of those big questions in later episodes, but that's all we've got time for today. Thank you. Thank you. It was a joy to be with you today. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.